say something about that now, and I will sure. then fly it into whatever episode it is. <laughs> is in March. I think probably, and then there were three. Will be March, right? Yeah. It will be, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, we'll fly that in. So okay. actually, I'll do that right now. Yeah. So. Why not? We'd like to take a moment to reflect that this is actually the mark of one year of recording Tabletop Genesis. Yay! Happy birthday to you. And we can sing that without paying anybody nowadays. So um, It's been a really fun year doing this. This has been... The response to this has been greater than I ever imagined. I thought we'd get 20 people li- listening if we were lucky. And we've had hundreds of listeners tuning we got 25, in. didn't we? I think yeah. so, yeah. <laughs> so, but we've had, you know... Thanks, our, our, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we've had a lot of listeners. We've got to interview Steve Hackett. We have a lot of good potential for going into uh, this year. So I just want to take this time to say thank you to the listeners. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Thank you, guys. And also, thank you to Tom, to Stacy, to Simon, to Ellie for doing this, because this has been a lot of fun, and it's something that I look forward to whenever we get together. Group hug! Yes, group hug. Let's hold hands It's, it's hurting cats sometimes with this podcast, <laughs> but that's all fun. That's half the bad, half the joy of this. So, uh, But again, we'll move on now with our regularly scheduled program, but I, we just wanted to take some time to acknowledge that. So again, thank you all for this. This is Progzilla Radio, the UK's first dedicated progressive rock music radio network. You're listening to Tabletop Genesis, a podcast by Genesis fans for Genesis fans. Welcome to Tabletop Genesis. This is Mike Lord, your host for today. And let's go around the tabletop and introduce ourselves. Hello, everybody. This is Ellie. Hello, this is Simon. This is Stacy. Hello. And Tom. Excellent. Well, we are going to talk about today, and then there were three, the Genesis album from 1978. This is the first album, as you can tell by the title, without Steve Hackett, who left uh, before the recording of this record. So, Simon, shall we throw it over to you f- to be our Wikipedian? Certainly, yeah. Um, and then there were three. is the ninth studio album from English rock band Genesis, released in March 1978 on Atlantic Records. It is the first record by Genesis as a trio of keyboardist Tony Banks, guitarist Mike Rutherford, and singer and drummer Phil Collins following the departure of guitarist Steve Hackett in 1977. The album marked a change in the band's sound, mixing elements of their progressive rock roots with more accessible pop music and Collins contributing to more of the group's songwriting. The album received mixed to mostly positive reviews from critics, but it was a commercial success reaching number three in the UK and number 14 in the US. It has spawned three singles. Its lead single, Follow You, Follow Me, became their most successful single since their formation, reaching number seven in the UK and number 23 in the US. The album was certified platinum by the Recording Industry Association of America for selling over one million copies. Well done, Genesis. Genesis toured worldwide in 1978 to support their album with their first touring guitarist, Daryl Sturmer. 
Sorry, yeah. worldwide doesn't did it include South America? Or Asia? <laughs> I'm sorry. Actually, sorry. it did include Asia this time around. <laughs> you yeah. need to go and update that entry, yes. Ellie. <laughs> Northern Hemisphere wide, we should say. Now, there was one other little bit which I wanted to include, which is at the bottom. It says, and then there were three. Was recorded at uh, Relight Studios in uh, Hilvanbreek in uh, the Netherlands, the same location as Wind and Wuthering. According to Rutherford, the album was recorded in two weeks. This is the reason why I wanted to make mention of it. The title, and then there were three, comes from a verse from a children's rhyme, Ten Little Indians. Four little Indians up on a spree, one got fuddled up, and then there were three. It alludes to the state of the band at the time, after the departure of guitarist Steve Hackett in 1977, which reduced the group to a trio. Right. They're saying, right. He, they're saying he got fuddled up. Yes. Right. Yeah, fuddled up. <laughs> well, I think it, it is one of those, you know, after having Peter left in 75 and, you know, with Steve in 77, it was kind of like, oh, people are dropping like flies in this band. So what's next up? And I think it, it was the acknowledgement of that. And one of their few albums that there's no lyrical or song reference in the title. So it does definitely give a different flavor to it, but also lets you know what's going on. I think on the reissue interviews for this album on the DVD, Mike Rutherford talks about being interviewed by an American journalist who says oh so why is the album called and then there were three and he kind of goes oh this is gonna be a long one you know it's it's, when somebody either doesn't do their homework or just doesn't know about the band at that stage it's a little bit different so I've, i've said too that this is the album post hackett leaving that you can kind of play alternate history with because Hackett had his own second solo album come out right around the same time in 78 and you can kind of say okay if he had been around in Genesis A what would he have contributed to the songs that ended up on the album or what songs of his could have ended up on the album my whole see it's interesting you say that because I always thought if Steve did stick around Mm -hmm. we would have Wind and Wuthering part two Okay. Just based on, well, what, and then there were three sounds like, mm-hmm. um, as it is, and then what Steve was doing around the same time. When we, we decided to, to talk about this album, mm-hmm. I was really kind of dreading it. Okay. <laughs> not that I don't like talking to you guys. Um, <laughs> that's not it. it. It's more because this is probably the album I'm most indifferent about. Okay, sure. Um, and I was like trying to figure out why. Mm-hmm. And I think out of all of their albums, this is the one that holds on to um, the past more so than any of their others. So this is the truly the most transitory album with a lineup change. Mm-hmm. I think I said to Simon the other day, it's all Duke lyrics and Wind and Wuthering music. That's how I yeah. you know, feel about this album. Well, so, so yeah. It's one of the Genesis dark corners, isn't it? It is, yeah. because well, you have... Trick and Wind and Wuthering, which I always thought was like Night at the Opera, Day at the Races. Their version of that, like a the back-to-back a pair of albums. Yes. Then you have Duke starting pretty much the 80s and their whole mega success with that and a different direction they were taking the music in. And you have this, and then there were three, which kind of is in between that kind of like no man's land, where as Stacey said, yeah. it's kind of got yeah. some ties to the past and it's also looking forward. They were definitely taking a different approach to their songwriting. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's it's one of those you kind of gloss over. But then when you listen to it, I, I think there's got a lot of brilliant stuff on there. Absolutely, yeah. I don't want to. I don't want everybody to think that I, there's nothing I really like about this album. But yeah, it is a. 
And then there was a hater. And then there, no. <laughs> My line about this is that if you look up transitionary uh, transitional album in the dictionary, they have a picture of this album. Yeah. Because yeah. it's it is the definition of. Mike is finding his footing as a lead guitarist, along with the rhythm guitar that he had done forever in Genesis. But I, he's finding a new role within that. There's a lot more solo songs on this album than probably on any previous Genesis album. Um, there are collaborative albums, but Mike even talks about in interviews that you know the jams really weren't working for this album. Then in Duke, they started working again. Okay. And so there was less of the collaboration at this point. And I think that, for me, this is a very even album. There's really not many lows on this album, but there aren't that many highs either. The songs sound very similar in some ways. Uh, there's not as much diversity there because, again, I think that's something that, you know, just Steve being a different type of lead guitarist brought to the band that then wasn't there anymore. Uh, Tony would talk about how, you know, Steve was an ally and doing some of the quirkier things, and he lost out on that when Steve was gone. Yeah, it sounds like they're working very hard on this album, yeah. and it's, it has a feeling, it's a very dense album for me. Yeah. Like, there's there's not a lot of range going on, right. and I don't know if they're just trying to make up for the fact that there's one less member, so they're like, let's make everything one louder to right. <laughs> compensate, and they're, right. they're, I think, you know, in many ways, maybe they're just figuring out, okay, we had a shift in, in lineup, well, mm -hmm. you know, how's that going to sound for us now? And again, that's part of that transitory feel this right. album has. And let's focus on what we're good at yes you know sure. and part of that was maybe coming out into this world of of doing a bit more of the individual songs yeah. to kind of say okay you know let's you know do this a bit more it's a very interesting album in the fact that you hear a lot of the members of genesis in interviews talking about how when steve left and i think probably all of us around this table and many of you out there in uh, in podcast land probably know the story mm -hmm. of uh, of steve's departure at the end of uh, the was it or is it in the middle Dorian of mixing of uh, of the seconds out live album um and you hear that a lot of the the members of the band saying well after the departure of ant and the departure of uh, of peter this was less of a traumatic event but in some ways this is the album you kind of miss the one member that left the most right um with with uh, with with ant and um and peter they kind of sort of changed the gear they sort of met the challenge so right. to speak whereas this album why i would never say it's a bad album mm -hmm. it's certainly the one where you kind of feel the space and with ant leaving that was so early in their career that Yes, it's, he was a major writer and it was a major change for them where they thought that was the one time the band might actually end. But there were five people listening to the band at that point. So it's not something, it's something retroactively that we see as a very important time and that they see because they lived through it is very important. Peter was the voice. He was the, the person out there in the costumes and that, again, people think singers do everything. So this is where... You know, he was the one that did everything, so how are they going to continue? And then they continue. And you're right, I think that I, I talked before we started recording about, you know, this is again the alternate history album, and we can do the same thing with Trick of the Tale about how if Peter was there, how that album would have been. But I think that it wouldn't have been that different, whereas I think tr this album would have been different than it was. It might have been, as Stacy said, Wind and Wuthering Part Two. 
But even then, it wouldn't have been exactly wind and weathering in that respect. It has some great songs and some other mm songs. <laughs> now, my, my issue is uh, with the album cover. Why is it so uh -huh. dark? That mm. It doesn't reflect the songs that it contains because, some, again, it has some great songs. You, you know? say that. I was actually reading on Wikipedia um, yesterday about the album cover. It was designed by the hypnosist Storm Ferguson. Yes. Uh, and uh, Storm actually... Uh, did say that the album he, he def defined the album cover as a failure um, he said that it was a, an attempt to show a guy getting out of a car having a cigarette and the car moving off ah, okay. it was the whole idea of actually trying to delineate the leaving of one member but it course it was all done in blurs and it, it didn't really <laughs> right you don't know there's a car like I think the lighting fail, is yeah because I get none of that from right. looking at this yeah I have no clue what this cover is about I mean I, I read that the I'd read that the other day on Wikipedia as well I was like okay finally I'm learning what the cover's about and I read that it was like three or four sentences like really goes into it and I'm like uh, it just kind of like bored me. I was like, and, and, and even that doesn't make sense. It's still a bad cover. Exactly. And what's with the ectoplasm on the G and E? Like, right. what is this? I don't but know. but it is a, it is yeah. using that Lamb Lies Down font again that they hadn't used on the last two albums. It, it's in it's interesting that it's a yeah. callback to something. And this album certainly doesn't sound like the Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. But I think it was also. I might be reading into this a bit too much, but kind of a reaffirmation of we are still Genesis. We still have a history oh, I think that right. you've liked yeah. as fans. Yeah. And so we're going to move forward in this direction and see where life takes us. So. And Slimer went all over it. And looking back awesome. at this album now, it, it, I think it's plain to see that there was a ton of pressure on this album at the very least not to suck because <laughs> yeah. they had just come off, you know, a huge world tour of 77 they had lost Steve Hackett, who had been there, you know, the sound, the, the feel of the guitar sound through for the past eight mm -hmm. years or so. And punk was coming into its own, like there was, the whole musical scene was changing. So this, had this album tanked and really had some stinkers on it, like that could have been the end right there. And they might have decided, mm -hmm. okay, let's just go our separate ways. No pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, I think this album, maybe because they were striving for it, I don't want to say they were purposely striving for it not to suck. Maybe there's not those tremendous highs and lows. Like they just wanted to like, let's keep everyone happy. Let's keep ourselves happy. Mm -hmm. And then with Duke, they went a whole different direction. But at least they were able to transition from the late 70s into the 80s successfully. With yeah, I haven't even yeah. considered that. Like what was going on in the music world right. uh, at the time, which was a lot different than when they had these other kind of changes in their lineup and changes in the band. I mean, this was the most significant, I think, an impactful, you know, time for for Genesis. That whole thing when prog rock was starting to get a lot less relevant. Yeah. So, well, with yeah. that, let's move on to the first track on this album, Down and Out. Check my back, boy. 
again, another great uh, album opener from Genesis. Um, kind of like that that high note. I don't know what instrument it is, but it just really sets the mood for the song. Um, I think, to, in my mind, this is Genesis' metal track. Yes. Like, <laughs> if they played a little bit harder or uh, a current metal band covered this song, it would kick ass <laughs> so to me this was the hardest thing they have done yet i mean yeah. you could say like maybe certain parts of the musical box or the knife had kind of like a harder you know really rocky tough edge to them but this through and through is like they're they're metal they're down and dirty we're like we're gonna kick punk in the ass <laughs> kind like, of track and i like that mike got some loud guitar right yeah, at the start of things absolutely. to kind of say okay i'm gonna be the lead guitarist on this album Here's something that you can hear that I'm playing that's, you know, out there and that, again, gives that edgy driving kind of propulsion to this song. Yeah, look what I can do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the keyboards, then the guitar, and then the drums. Right. Three pieces. Yeah. Right. Can I ask a quick question? Um, I bought this album back in the early 80s, and then I, I played the album once, but I came up with this idea that I would save the album hmm. for later in life. So I would always have one Genesis album from the 70s I could listen to from the first time. And this is... So you just listen to this fresh... And I genuinely did. I rolled this album out for the very first time in um, many years. (laughs) And uh, so it literally was the second time and third time that I'd heard it was, was a couple of days previous to this. And I wanted to do this so I could be the new pair of ears, so to speak. And listen to this album. Now, the reason why I wanted to ask a question about this is that I did read somewhere that the opening of this track was actually a little bit of stuff that was left over from Wind and Wuthering. Oh. I don't know. I had never read that. I don't know that. But that would be... That's a certain possibility. I, I always heard this track as kind of like when I hear it, I think of it as a late 70s Watcher of the Skies. Because mm. you've got that intro with the keyboards that kind of builds up. Then you have kind of a fast kind of rhythm section. At the very end, it goes back to that crescendo of keyboard chords yeah. up to a very end. So it, it struck me as like, all right, we're now in the late 70s music kind of theme. and But we still kind of recognize our roots. Like we'll, we'll do yeah. a song that's kind of like Watcher, but up to today's kind of standard. Do you get the feeling though it is it's a kind of Genesis by the numbers intro or or do you genuinely think okay this is an inspirational one? I think it's inspirational. I I always thought that you know this is a strong kick-ass track to start with that has some balls right out of the gate and that it really drives things forward. Like I don't think it's by the numbers. I think it's showing what they do well. And also in the second verse of this song, it says, I don't want to beat about the bush, but none of us is getting any younger. There's people out there who take your place, you place, not your place, for some reason. Yeah, it's your place, it's anyway. Typos. A more commercial view, a fresher face. So I guess they are sort of saying to the fans, we're moving forward with a new... And maybe they're conscious of the whole punk scene coming sure. along. Because oh, yeah, this is 1978, so as a result, yeah. it has punk is actually on the horizon here. Right. People have heard it, especially in the UK. Right. They didn't play the song every show in the and then there were three tour, but they played a number of times. And Phil used to enter it. Uh, he used to say this about it, so maybe it will shed some light on what they thought the song was about. Phil would say, "This is a song about a man with a big cigar, a man with a big cigar who owns a very, very big company, and he wants to get rid of someone about this big, meaning tiny." who's outlived his usefulness. He is no good to anybody anymore. And so the man with the big cigar is going to kick him out. 
and this song is called Down and Out. That's pretty much what I guess the song is basically about. Right. This guy goes to what I always figured was a hotel lobby or a hotel bar, and he's being kicked out by the upper management, the man. Uh, and maybe it's because they've referenced Cigar in here. It always reminded me of Pink Floyd's Have a Cigar, where you have a meeting with the man who doesn't know anything about you or what you do, like, you know, which one's pink. And here they're they're saying you, you're not useful anymore. Like, it's time to hit the road. This is the best song ever about human resources. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. HR people the world over. This is the HR anthem. Yes. <laughs> I can That's see right. David Brent walking out to yeah, this. I, yeah. so. the, I, I think this is, again, you know, one of these songs that really kind of gives credit to Phil because, again, he can make odd time signatures sound normal. And you know that this has a bit of that stutter in it and mm-hmm. ends up being, I think, in 5-4. And it, so there's that extra beat in there that makes you just go, oh, okay, this is... But it's he not... grooves it. Oh, yeah, I think well, that's what's great about it is that it's not obvious. It's one of those things that if you're into counting, you can kind of go, oh, okay, that's what this is. But if you're just a regular listener, it's like, turn it on again. You don't know that's in 13 or whatever until I... you actually start going... Oh, yeah, there's that weird I'm not little entirely thing. sure you know that, but Are You Into Counting was my favourite chat-up line before I oh, met Stacy. That's right. So. And Stacy said yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I see the one, two of us together. Oh, yes. oh. But I, the, 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 that stuttering, that kind of rhythm that Phil gets going, I always got the impression that that's the reason why it wasn't a, a main staple in that tour, let alone any other tour after that, because right. it was a little bit challenging to play i mean when you listen to the live version of it it, it's not got that same kind of feel Mm -hmm. that phil has to it on the studio album uh which is a shame because this track live as stace was saying the studio has balls but live it was even like 10 times better there was a bootleg if you listen to it where phil growls several times like he just has such grit when he's doing it um i'll recreate it for you since you (laughs) asked me to the very last couple lines he goes i walk a straight line right between the eyes and it just gives goosebumps every time he does that gave me goosebumps right now (laughs) (laughs) it did something else to me (laughs) i need to go change (laughs) too much information (laughs) just just point on the doll where tom's going Well, there is this, this, uh, you talked about kind of this being a difficult song to perform. And when I was going through my bootlegs to kind of look at this that were gifted to me by somebody, they were, the, and then there were three tour was kind of in three different segments, kind of earlier in the year, middle of the year, end of the year in 78. And in May and September, Ballad of Big was the song that kind of fit into this slot that they would change around a bit. And in March and July, it was Down and Out was the track that kind of slotted into there. The other songs that were always in the set list were Lady Lies, Burning Rope, I think Follow You, Follow Me was there most of the time, uh, and maybe, and and Deep in the Motherload. And so I think those are the, like, it switched out of there, not necessarily because it was hard, but maybe it wasn't getting the reaction that it was from the crowd. But, you know, it has this great, uh, album-wise, it has this great Tony solo after the third verse that, you know, just really, you know, grabs you when you hear it because, you know, the drums are going off in the 5-4 rhythm and it's it's just fantastic. 
It's got razor blades in it. Exactly. It does. And, you know, it's a sharp solo. And and I think it's great. And, you know, it ends, as Tom was saying before, kind of in this crescendo in a way, kind of reprising a bit of the, the start. And then you go into Undertow. Curtains are drawn by the fire Holds the room Meanwhile Outside when we talk about some of our favorite Genesis moments, one of them is the transitions between songs and this transition between the very high note and, you know, spectacular end of down and out and the very subtle, you know, beginning of undertow is one of my favorite transitions in, uh, in their catalog. So you don't find it too jarring at all that it's, that it's such different styles right next to each other. I think there's enough space in between the songs where you just came off this high and then you're taken down a little bit. Okay, now we're going to go in this direction. Uh, that yeah. question was a bit of a setup because I agree with you 100% that I think it's <laughs> great because it does show Genesis's different sides right off the bat that, you know, this is a band that even though we just lost a member, we this is still what we're about. And, you know, we do this kind of high energy stuff, these kind of softer tracks, and this is what we do. And we're very good at it. It's a very crystalline track, actually. Yes. No, I was going to say that, yeah, in the first few lines of Undertow, you don't know what to expect. You're like, oh, what is this song? And then it turns into a, this yeah. amazing, beautiful song. It sort of opens out. Yeah, exactly. exactly. It opens yeah. out and the lyrics are amazing. And Yeah, we've talked about in previous podcasts how some of Tony's earlier works were young people's poetry. Yeah. I think at this point he has his PhD, his doctorate. <laughs> He's reached the point now where this, I believe this is one of his most brilliant songs in mm-hmm. all of his Genesis history. I mean, if you had a top five Tony songs, this would probably be one or two. Mm-hmm. And it just, some of the lyrics 
excuse me while i get a little emotional <laughs> they're just great especially this the one parts in the in the lyrics in the in the chorus where he goes crying to the grass and trees and heaven finally on your knees let me live again that part never fails to put a lump in my throat oh. Mate. <laughs> I could use a man hug anyway. <laughs> I think with me, the lyrics are something that, you know, this is a song that when I first heard this, I don't know if it, if it did grab me that much, but I think that as I've gotten older and as I know people who, that this is a track that really connected with them and helped them through dark times, I think that for me, it's it's a song that I've gained a greater appreciation for as time's gone on. And regarding the lyrics, I mean, the line that really speaks to me um, is, Wine flows from flask to glass and mouth as it soothes, confusing our doubts. And that's really me every weekend. <laughs> so I can really relate to this track. Your name is Stacy. Say hello. Hi, Stacy. <laughs> well, this is also something that it's a song. It's a song that starts with that music and vocals right off the bat. And there's a lot of different tracks of Genesis that do that. All right. There's something about that that really grabs you and, and gives you that feeling that something is a little bit different here. Like it's a different kind of song you're listening to. Supper's Ready does that. Dancing with the Moonlit Night ripples and all those songs really have this area where they can just grab you and and you're, you're like i don't know where this is going but i have to listen and pay attention right, right. away right. yeah it's There's... more personal more human in a way right. and, to... and it has an absolutely kick-ass chorus as yes well. it does yeah. so it's it's a great little song and i'm shocked that they didn't play it live during they never played this they never played this live during there were three well, i'm shocked they never played it live because this is genesis's first probably only true power ballad yeah you know sure. like i i picture them in like long hairsprayed hair ten years, <laughs> ten years later if it had been the 80s they'd have been know, up on a mountain so somewhere time. like right. this this track i'm sure inspired bands like bon jovi and poison and rat and scorpion bon jovi poison rat if you're listening please write in and yes, see whether right. or not this song actually influenced yes. you right well i think that this is this is one that it's kind of this album's afterglow again it's a yeah. tony song but it has yeah, that, that that feel to it that emotional depth that really again connects with a lot of people out there and you know genesis had has great album tracks that you know never got radio play might have never gotten played live but that there are those people who say this is my favorite track on the album because it it helped me it moved me through something it's like banks's don't give up isn't it exactly yeah, right, yeah, sure that's very good. yeah i like that connection yeah. so I'll, I'll be over here if you need me <laughs> great we, we kind of alluded to mike and tony having solo projects being started around this time and Tony's first song on his first solo album is from The Undertow, right. correct? Which I had read was supposed to be the instrumental, right. might have been intro, intro to, this, to yes. Undertow. Oh, really? Yeah. Which I think is good that it wasn't, because one, he got to save it for his solo album, and, and the song didn't, doesn't need anything more than it has right now. It's a simple verse, chorus, verse, chorus, and that's it. But it mm -hmm. does so well on its own that you, you couldn't add to it anymore. Right. Yeah, I always get the, the sense with a lot of Tony's solo comp compositions that it was kind of things got pared down over time so and maybe he was like oh i have this great composition that has you know these different parts to it and then mike and tony were like oh let's take this part out or use this part somewhere else and it really did kind of serve the benefit of the album and the song itself better uh 
this song also for me has a connection when i was listening to it recently like there was there were parts of it that i was just like this is a lot i feel like i'm listening to evidence of autumn the the b-side kind of alternate track off of dude and not in a bad comparison but i was like these are almost like sibling songs i think that they were kind of related to each other in some ways and i think going into one of the choruses or coming out of the chorus on on this track i could almost mentally go right into kind of a chorus of evidence of autumn and it would really work well so maybe there can be a mashup of that well genesis were very famous for sort of like for for lifting entire sections and placing them in other so almost like a construction site so okay we'll put that chorus there we'll put that verse there we'll save that for or that verse or that entire section sometimes can sit there for like years before it gets used on an album so i can definitely see that yeah there might be a connection there but it was just something that that listened that connected with me on recent listens that i was like yeah this is this i feel this connection this is why you know kind of bigger picture it's like when people say oh why do you why do you do a podcast about a band (laughs) you know it's like because i keep hearing new things every time i listen to this and i think that's that's one of those connections that for me was was new Let's move on then to Ballad of Big. It's one of, I think Phil wrote the lyrics to this one. It's one of his story songs, kind of Old West. It reminds me of me and Virgil a yeah. bit, kind of being that, that Ma and Pa Frontiers yeah. type, of, type of song. Uh, and it's also the first track where I feel the lack of Steve Hackett on the album. Yes. Because I think that, you know, while the intro is great and kind of, you know, does set the stage for this song, I'm like, I hear guitar playing during this intro that's not there. And again, you know, it's just, again, being a transitional album is when you can kind of hear these things. I'd never hear that on Duke, where it's like, I think that's a cohesive album of the three of them. And so this is, that's something for me with this track that, you know, I, I think it's that first one where I feel that. Well, I think this goes back to what Stacy was saying about how the album was a forward looking and a backward looking yeah. album simultaneously. This is an album which has Duke lyrics, as you say, mm-hmm. and Wyndham Wuthering, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sounds really, mm-hmm. I suppose. And I, 
I guess when you think when you talk about this, you you reference me in Virgil and sort of like you know, yeah. that's a, that's an '80s. And I, yeah. I do think, yeah, I, I do think there's a lot of this lyric, especially this this strikes me as being sort of like a very '80s Genesis lyric. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, how Phil sings "Eleventh Third of March." In some bits, like he got mad or some out of the look. <laughs> Very, very, very shouty. <laughs> very shouty, yeah, exactly. Well, I just thought of it, you know, I said earlier how I thought Down and Out was kind of their late 70s Watch for the Skies. This is their late 70s Battle of Epping Forest, but it takes place in the Midwest. That's, <laughs> that's where I got it. It's got a lot of lyrics, Some sometimes too many lyrics. The one the line which kind of like goes over the bounce for me is when he says, Big Jim and his crew were jumped by an all-star Indian tribe. Kind of like goes past. Mm-hmm. Is this the first album that that, that Phil genuinely uh, started contributing large bouts of lyrics? Because I know he is it two tracks on this he contributes. Lyrics? I, th- I think he because of the way they credit the album when it's the collaborations. Like Rutherford is listed first for for follow you follow me, and he wrote the lyrics for that. Phil's credited first for down and out, and for this track. And, and also for uh, Scenes from a Night's Dream. So I think okay. he might have written those lyrics or had a okay. strong hand in them. So but I think he wrote some things... Well, he, I think he wrote some things on uh, A Trick to the Tail. Yeah. Uh, I mean, More Fool Me, I think, are, is kind of his lyric. You know, so it's... I think it was stepping up a bit more, but it also... It's still not how it was later on, where it was really a third for each of them. Right, but just based on math, Yes, <laughs> I think he uh, he contributed a bit more than yeah. in the past because there is right. now just three of them. Right, exactly. um, yeah, uh, this, thank you, math. <laughs> right. This I remember the first time I heard this album, and I got you know I listened to Down and Out. I'm like, this is a, okay, Genesis song, got mm. it. Undertow, oh yeah, because again I, I went backwards in my uh, right. listening, so mm-hmm. I started with Visible Touch, went back, so. Undertow wasn't a big of a shot. Battle the Big, what the fuck is this? <laughs> this isn't my favorite song, but I give it major points from being such a departure of what they've done in the past. Yeah. I mean, this is, I mean, I'm thinking if you're thinking, if you got into Genesis, you know, from the beginning or, you know, even, you know, when they were a five piece and up to this point, you've never heard anything like this from them. And uh, I give them big props because they pulled it off pretty well. I'm not a big fan of the lyrics, um, the whole frontiersman. I think if you've listened to previous podcasts from us, you know how I feel about me and Virgil. Um, <laughs> so this doesn't really do much for me. But again, I think that the risk they took in doing a song like this in you know this stage of their career is pretty ballsy. I've often wondered what it would be like if this song had different lyrics. Like there's some really good moments and there's some great drum fills throughout it. But it's kind of a tough road when you're taking such a specific story of like a, a frontiersman, this guy who's going to take cattle across and everyone says you're not going to be able to do it. And I really think it was Phil's love of the Western, you know, he's got this Alamo obsession. I always wondered if Kate Tell would put out like the Genesis' greatest Western song. (laughs) (laughs) And it would be this, me and Virgil, and that's all. That's all. And they'd they'd throw in Mike's Deep in the Mother Load. They'd throw in Phil's Roof is Leaking. Like they'd do a whole bunch of different songs. There's an Americana sort of thing. Is that what you're trying to sort of say? Yeah, and I was wondering like, because we grew up with this. Like, it's part of the U.S. history. And as we're here, we're so obsessed with British culture and Renaissance fairs because it's it's so alien I mean, to us. Yeah. Is there is there a culture in the UK which is like, oh, 
we got to go to that Cowboy and Indian Festival. It's so cool. Yeah. Oh, we always do that, yeah. <laughs> In fact, I actually only stopped wearing my cowboy hat a few years back, really. No, to be really honest with you, it's just like you say. It's the exotic. You've got an Englishman looking at another culture and going, cool. <laughs> yeah, and I think that was the jarring thing for me. It was like these are lyrics we would typically hear in a country song or a folk song, and, and I'm talking about you know the American music culture, and then to have it in this, this British band doing kind of proggy rock music against it, it, it seemed a, a little dissonant. I can say I don't really like this track that much. It's one of these ones that I think the music and the lyrics don't really go together and i feel like the music needs like one more section in there to kind of give it some variety whether it's a quieter section kind of how 11th earl of mar has that quieter middle section in it or a different track i, I just think it, it needs something else and you know it's the it's the western piece i've I've never quite been into Westerns, even though I do in, like me and Virgil compared to a lot of people. Um, oh. Yeah, I know, I know. Really? Uh, yes, uh, me and Virgil rates that. higher than you might recall in my book, but that's, that's yeah, I know, but that was back in Abacab days. Uh, but, you know, when Phil's like, he ca- <laughs> singing, he called Jim Yella, and I'm just like, oh. Really? I'm like, <laughs> and I'm like, it's just like, oh. I'm like, that doesn't. Well, he'll never do that again. I know. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it's, a, it's a track that I think is, is nice enough it just doesn't it's if i were skipping a track on this album i'd be like skip it's funny you should say that because it is i think it tends to sort of work if you do it the other way around Mm -hmm. like you know you get yes doing yours is no disgrace Mm -hmm. where you got that dun 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 you know that sort of that big and that works fine but they're not singing about about it in that Yeah, I don't know if Sean Anderson doing Western music would be... <laughs> I'd pay good, good money for that. <laughs> I, I'm looking for his country album. I had a dream like that once, actually. <laughs> well, let's talk about when we do our psychiatry episode. Yes. We'll talk about that one, so. well, It's funny you should say that, Mike, about how you sometimes... This would be the track you skip. Right. Like, I don't mind this track, as Stacey said. It's kind of like, it's not awesome. I don't hate it. I'll listen to it, and I'll, I'll you know, bob my head along. It's the next track, which is the one that I skip over. Oh, so let's jump into Snowbound. love this track this was the one of the ones which actually leapt off the page for me really? yeah and I have no idea why I mean a, pro- do I. a lot of people <laughs> a lot of people will say that sort of like you know this is the th- this album is your own special way but I love it I really do like it you're taking the words it. right out of my mouth <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it has uh, we were discussing this as we were listening to the track uh, it has maybe one too many choruses. Yes. <laughs> but it is, I love the chord sequences on this. And again, I love its fragility. Um, okay, um, there's probably a lot more people that would maybe go with Undertow over Snowbound, but this one really popped for me. 
And and I'm I'm listening to it with new ears. No, as no, well. I hear it. I I liked the verses of this track. I actually think that it's it's a really delicate sounding setting the mood. It's a, and another winter song. I think that you know you, with it being a mic song, you know it has that kind of guitar change to it and kind of this acoustic feel, which is nice. And I think Tony has this real interesting kind of backing keyboard, just kind of backing up the guitar, really nice and complimentary. And then we get into those goddamn choruses, and I it just kills it for me. It's like I don't care about the snowman. It's like, but it's but that's for me. It's it's like I think there's not like I was saying with Ballad of Big, there's not enough to this song for me. It has the verses and the choruses, and that's it. And it has the choruses too much. But My now, see, I'm going to defend Simon right. here because right. I, I really do like the song. I, like I knew this it was him. I know, honey. I got it. I got this. I got you back. No, I, I like this better than, I actually prefer Snowbound Undertow, which are two tracks I mix up a lot. Sorry, I have to admit that. Um, I love the small verse, big chorus. I mean, that's the Genesis formula. That's the Genesis formula of the 80s and the 90s, right? Think about it. Yeah, the melodic do... verse with the big wall sound chorus. I'll give you a yes, but. <laughs> of course you Show will. me your big but. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but this just doesn't do it well. I I, I'm not saying it does yeah, yeah. it well. I'm right, saying right. it's perfect. Yeah. I think... There are other tracks in their catalog that, you know, do that formula better. But um, I really like this. I love the acoustic guitars in this track. Yeah, it I reminds me a lot of Trespass in many ways. Mm -hmm. um, some of the more acoustic parts of that album, which is really nice because I said at the beginning, this to me sounds a very dense album. And mm -hmm. it just seems like to be like a buzzing or something going on, a sound throughout mm. it that's just loud and like constant. You're and right, this, there is something about this album yeah. with regards to a sound. And there's it? a, and in Snowbound, particularly in the verses, when you hear the acoustic guitars, there's some breathing room in this track that some of the other tracks I don't think have, in my opinion. And that's why I, I really like it. Um, now, I just want to say that, however, you know, when listening to the song and I hear Phil Collins saying, lay your body down upon the midnight snow, I do feel uncomfortable. <laughs> and it is a bit awkward for me. So I kind of tune out the lyrics. But um, otherwise, I, I think it's a great song. Well, because it would be cold. <laughs> I that's actually, what you think. And, and sometimes I can kind of sound like I'm down on Mike Rutherford's songs and everything. But actually, I think his other songs on this album are really strong. Mm. So when we get to those, I'll be singing his praises. Musically. I really like. As I said, it does give some breathing room. I, I love the acoustic guitar, and it sounds like even the melody is very good. Mm -hmm. uh, the chorus, I'm not a fan of. Mm -hmm. The snowmax just keeps, keeps repeating. And I actually, for the, I think maybe for the first time, I actually listened to this and looked at the uh, the lyrics at the same time, and it was I, it was very kind of scary. It's a dark. It's a it is a dark, dark song. Like, is, yeah. this, is this about? Like the snowman has consciousness and feelings and all these people are building him up and tearing him down. And he's like, they don't know my pain because they're tearing me down. I've they're, heard they're a couple different fun. interpretations of this song. One of them is that. The other one is that it's like a dead body that's fallen and kind of been made into a snowman. You know, I. I, oh, yeah, man, I know. That's I dark. Like, what are yeah. you reading? <laughs> you can just imagine I, the door bursting open to well, the studio and Mike Rutherford bursting in. Lads, I've got a great idea for a song. <laughs> a frozen corpse. <laughs> so, again, you know, again, so I, I go more yeah, with right. what Tom was saying is the interpretation of putting yourself in the mind of a snowman. Right. 
which I do think is actually an interesting thing. I actually, the lyrics are the piece that I actually do like about this song. If there was kind of a middle break like there is in Ripples, that there's kind of a middle instrumental right. bit there, if there was something, again, I don't Do you think, do... though, that that speaks to the very fact that they were unconsciously paring down their sound yes, on this album? Yes, I do think that that's a part of, part of the issues that I have with this. Again, we talked a little bit of how the production makes it all sound a little bit the same, but I think that it's it's a track that for me, again, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't skip it, and I've like I like it more now than I used to. You know, once I get to the third or fourth repetition of the chorus, that's when I would skip it. It's like subliminal messaging. Yeah, you know, like, is it's, it, it's, uh, let's count. Yeah, there's yeah, no, there, yeah, I did. There, there are. <laughs> I think so. There, there are four repetitions of this chorus, and this is a, a track that, like, actually couple of the the b-sides you know had been maybe a two or three minute song just a little vignette almost Mm -hmm. i think i would really like it i mean it's really hard to find another word that rhymes with snowman (laughs) snowman no man glow man (laughs) shall we move on to burning rope please Perhaps my favorite song on the album. It's one of those ones that, you know, it just the arrange. I think it's the best arranged track on the album, uh, and it just gives you know. There's so much in there from the performances of all three of them on, on this track. It's the first, I think, the first real guitar solo on the album, and Mike does really well with it. I think. So. Yeah, he had. I'd read that Tony had said about the song that Mike did a great job of doing his solo exactly as he had written it right <laughs> and i think i think in a rare instance this is probably one instance where tony would say he missed steve is that mm. steve would have taken it and probably given it another level like the fourth or fifth solo 
Whereas Mike kind of like got through it and did it exactly as he should have been. Yeah, it fits the song. It fit the song yeah. and it got done. Like, and, it, and I think it's an awesome solo. It's yeah. like that crying guitar almost is kind of like trying to be Steve Hackett right. with that crying guitar sound. I think Steve, I mean, I'm sorry, I think Mike gets it. Mm-hmm. But as I said, Steve probably would have taken it to a higher mm-hmm. level. Yeah, it's the difference between sight reading sheet music and just playing on the feel of the song itself right. and kind of improvising. So, but you know, I. I love that Mike's guitar work on this song and really yeah. the whole yeah. album. Oh, yeah. He really stepped up and, yeah. and, and it's, you know, it, I think as a Genesis fan, if you were following them up until this point, um, you should be reassured because yeah. he did a really good job. <laughs> right. and, no, I agree. Yeah. I love the instrumental bits of this song the most. Actually, I would prefer it if the whole song was instrumental. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, let's be honest. Uh, I think this is a bit out of Phil's range. And okay. a bit wordy for his singing style. I always, when I, I, I love this song very much because it kind of a, a great coming together of the three members of Genesis. Mm-hmm. It really represents where they are and how they work together as three songwriters and performers. But ah, just the vocal performance is pretty awkward. For me, this is where Genesis kind of takes a turn where people are writing lyrics that they wanted to have out there. Tony right. was writing these lyrics. Phil was singing them because that was his job. I think when this album then turned to Duke, you'll notice that those lyrics are a lot more from the heart, streamlined, basic. They're still great, but they're not as like the warming sun, the cooling rain, you know, yet only eagles seem to pass on through and the man and the moon who seduced you then finally loosed you. Like this is kind of the last album where they kind of have those lyrics. Very metaphorical. Right. And Phil, I think even at that point has said that he was starting to wanting to feel more of this lyrics that he was singing. Like mm-hmm. these were lyrics that he was singing because they were the lyrics that the other mm-hmm. guys wrote. But once you get into Duke, he's like, I need something. If I'm going to be singing these lyrics, I need to feel them. And, mm-hmm. and as if I was saying these lyrics myself. Right. And I think this is a song, which although I love it and I love the song is kind of the epitome of one of those where mm-hmm. it was like, I'll sing these. And even live, it's kind of like, oh, it's a little bit of a stretch for a bloke. But, I, but I feel that he really felt it in the delivery. I think his delivery of this track is, it, it feels very different from the other deliveries on the album. I agree with Stacy about that because I think that he's singing in a different tone almost, like almost a deeper tone than he usually does, like the warming sun instead of the, the higher fill range. Right. And that's right. the thing. Like, this song, like, it's just Tom said, it was written with specific lyrics yeah. in a specific, you know, melody line. And it just, they, again, they were still kind of figuring out what that, what that happy place is for, for the writer and the singer. And you were saying that it was like Tony's, he always liked to get a, a Tony lecture at different times. Yes. One of my notes actually, I said, I, I think it's Tony's song on how to live a full life. That's the thing, like uh, Tony lessons, yeah. like Mad Man Moon, right. Tony lessons. You know, we should probably do an episode on that. You right. Know? And I think it's great. Like that's like, I really connect with this track. I think it's, it's really fantastic in a lot of ways, but I also get that they couldn't keep doing songs just like that. I mean, for me, it's, it's this one for the vine part two right, right. in many ways, mm-hmm. because that was like a little bit out of Phil's range as well. And there was a lot, it was a lot of storytelling right. and a lot of words and, you know, I'm just trying to cram everything in and to this one epic uh, piece. Um, so it kind of has that feel for me. Uh, and as we're saying, I guess trying to cram a lot in, it, it doesn't seem too crowded, but it just seems like enough's going on for, yeah. for only seven minutes. And as we're mm-hmm. saying, this was the longest track on the album. Right. And it seems still very proggy, 
but it's only seven minutes. Like it's not even ten minutes. <laughs> this is this is nothing compared to like Genesis's yeah, big epic tracks. Box, yeah. yeah. Yeah, because one for the vine is more than seven minutes. It's I guess. ten, yeah. I think. Again, yeah, this song. I like this song. I love this song, and again, it reminds me of one for the vine at some point in different sections of the song. Again, they were saying goodbye to the long songs. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> one thing I'd ask in terms of the lyrics with for Simon, if it's a UK thing, the expression "that's as may be" isn't really like that. Always struck me as an odd lyric. "That's as may be." Well, I don't know. Like is that? Do they use that a lot? Because I've heard Phil yeah. interviewed, and he's yeah. used that. That's maybe yeah. here. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not something we hear here. <laughs> it's uh, whatevers. <laughs> I, whatevers. He should have said that. Whatevers. Yeah. Well, well, whatevs. I don't know, but you can't take WTF. what you left behind. WTF? You're all alone. <laughs> now that is poetry. That that's is. fantastic. Yeah. That is millennial poetry. Yeah. <laughs> Well, the, another thing what I liked about how they approached different songs, we talked earlier about how they began songs just with lyrics and vocals right away, and that gave a different mm-hmm. feel to the song. I like when songs, they do the chorus first. It's kind of like when you watch a movie mm-hmm. and they show a scene, and then the movie goes back in time and shows you all what it led up to that scene. Yeah. That's kind of what a song like this is. It starts oh, with the chorus yeah, right yeah. away, then it goes into the verses, right. chorus again. It's kind of like a different feel to it. And I like that they were able to kind of vary it up a little bit. Yeah, it gives you kind of that preview of what you're going to get even more later on. And uh, and yeah, I think that melody that's played there, you know, that Tony plays it on the keyboards first, kind of going into the first chorus. And it's it's just one of those things that soars for me. And I'm just like, oh, I could listen to this forever. I think live it must have been incredible because didn't Phil play drums or at least some percussion during the instrumental part he, sure I think he, he had to have done something yeah. how often did this get played this was a, this was standard on the 78 tour and was it on Duke at all I don't think I don't so. think it was Duke no. Lady Lies lasted until right. the Duke tour but I think was, this was it but I, I, it must have been a great yeah show sure to, song to see it live yeah. yeah well the only other thing I was going to say is on a first listen didn't do it for me alright um, it was, and I, I guess this is probably because it's a very dense song. Mm-hmm. It's a very dense arrangement. You know, call me again in five years when I've uh, listened to it a little bit <laughs> right. more. I might have on a your very, fourth listen. You'll yeah, see. I might have a completely different opinion of the sure. uh, the track. All right, fair enough. And that also was the last track on the first side of the album. So we then go into the intro song on the second side, "Deep in the Motherload." <laughs> Yeah. 
out of the way, fat man. I got something to say. <laughs> Wait. Or do. So, yes. Yeah, so, or do. Oh, I mean, is, did I get the lyrical on there? <laughs> Hold up. So, you know, I said earlier that, you know, Bow to Big was like musically, it was like, what? Who's right. this band? I hear this lyric. I'm like, wow, we've come a long way since Unifons and, uh, <laughs> you know, the kind of the fantastical world uh, that that Genesis existed in, in the in previous albums. So again, I appreciate the, you know, bring it down to, to the common folk, right? The, the common fat man, <laughs> uh, if you will. Uh, the blue but, collar fat man. Yeah. The blue collar mm-hmm. fat man. Yeah. This, this album has a very kind of blue collar, um, you know, man on the street mm-hmm. kind of feel to it. And this, this song absolutely, uh, you know, kind of, well, so Hits sec- on their that. second yeah. second song, which talks about frontier in the West and yeah. right. going out west, so it's kind of interesting how like two songs on one particular album really focus on that. And I can't think that Phil had to have some bit of influence, <laughs> even though it is Rutherford's song, right? And they were writing; they were they were in America more than they had been in the past. So I think yeah. that they were kind of drinking up that influence too. You know, this is one of those tracks that. I was kind of light, but it never really grabbed me. And then a couple of years ago, Daryl Sturmer was doing his kind of Genesis show. And Ellie and I went to see it. And I was, I went into it kind of saying, uh, all right, let's see how this is. And he started off fine. He started off with jo- just a job to do off of Genesis and a couple of things. And I was like, all right, this is, this is fun. And then he started with a song that I didn't quite know, but it was just kind of the bum, 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 bum. And I'm like, is he going to do Back in New York City or, you know, In the Cage? That would be a different choice for what I was thinking the show was going to be. And then he goes into Deep in the Motherlode. And I, it's one of those times that I actually had a physical reaction of where I was kind of slouched back in my seat. And I was like, I, I literally sat up straighter like, oh, this is not what I thought this was going to be. And from that point on in the show, I was like, this is great. This is really good. Because the band that he had did a really great version of this song. And it's a song I had never seen live before. And it just gave me a new appreciation for this song that I had liked. But that I had never, listening to it on tapes or live shows, I was like, why did they open with this during Duke? Like, it's it's an okay song, but I, I didn't see why it was something that they played so often in the 78 and 80 time frame. But seeing it live, I was like, I get it now. I see why they were doing things this Yeah, way. I'm not surprised that Sturmer played it because yeah. it, my favorite part of the song is Mike's guitar. Yeah, This is sure. a great guitar work in yeah. here. So it kind of makes sense that maybe he gravitated toward this. Right. And you, it was funny, you were, you, you were talking about how you heard it starting and you're like, is this back in New York City in a cage? Mm-hmm. And every time I hear this... Um, track live in like a bootleg yeah. people are going nuts in the beginning because they probably think it's in the cage <laughs> or, or back in New, <laughs> or back New York City, City and then all of a sudden the crowd gets a little quieter which is a shame because this is I, I really like this song yeah. it is a great it is so much better like many of Genesis songs so much better live than mm. I think on the, on the album it okay. also has that, as you said, that sort of like back in uh, New York City kind of aggression to it, I yeah. suppose. This song live is just amazing when mm-hmm. we were at a concert, uh, the Rostromer song. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I already liked it, but live is a different experience. It's so powerful. Yeah. Yes. And the album version, I, I like uh, upon re-listening to it now because it's just this soup of guitars in there that it seems like that 
the riffs kind of, I don't know if he overdubbed a lot of things on there, but it just has this heaviness to it that just works for me with, you know, kind of the riff and the lyrics. And even though there's not, it's kind of like two verses, the chorus of Go West, Young Man, very short chorus, and then this middle quieter part, and then it goes back into the chorus again at the end. Like there's, it's one of those songs that there's not a lot of there, there, but it the way it all comes together works for me. And it has the moment before coming out of that quieter part where it's just the, the bass and drums like bum, 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 bum. And then the drive, the drums. It's one of my little musical things, like, whenever that happens, something awesome is coming up, and then you're like, oh, it is awesome, this is great. <laughs> yeah. it's, definitely, so he, it's definitely one of Rutherford's strong points on the album, if not, I think, of all the stuff that he's just contributed to the band himself. Right. It's just a strong tune, which on the album I love listening to, but I think live, I've never seen it live, but it must have been like an experience to see it, actually, you know, yeah. with the heavy crunching, dun, 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 like, it must have been yeah, and fantastic. also, like, the bass on this, too, is pretty yeah. fucking great. You know, right. it's like he's still saying, I'm still the bass player. <laughs> right. I'm still going to. And throughout the album, here. it's that way. I mean, I didn't talk about it with Burning Rope, but his bass on Burning Rope is fantastic. Yeah. So, again, Mike gets, sometimes doesn't get the credit he deserves for being the bass player. Right. Uh, because it's not necessarily in your face, but when you really listen to it, it is there. You know, Tony's spooky keys going into the quieter part. It's very 70s, but it fits the song, even though it's a, a Western song again. And, um, I, like, that middle part sometimes feels like Genesis has the, these times where pieces are lifted from other worlds and put into the, the, uh, the song. And this feels like, oh, it has this middle part dropped into this song all across the wagons and all this, and... It works, but I'm almost like, how did how did they think this would fit together? Mm-hmm. Until you actually do it and play it, and it works that works well. It again, much like the opening of the album, it goes from a kind of a louder song transitioning to a quieter song. Many too many. Many too many have stood where I stand. Many more stand here too. Strange is the way you built me up and knocked me down again. Thought was fun, and now it's over. Why can't I just leave the stage?
Many Too Many, I, I believe, um, and this is only me looking up on Wikipedia, I believe is the last song ever on the Genesis uh, record to feature the Mellotron. Oh. But are you sure Invisible Touch doesn't have Mellotron? <laughs> I really thought. I suspect that it's probably it probably makes a, a a reoccurrence digitally, but never actually as the tape-driven Mellotron sure, again. Okay. No. Oh, I thought you might. You were looking like through. You no, know, I think that's interesting. I, and honestly, I wouldn't have even thought that it was on this album at all in the first. Neither album. would I actually. To be really honest with you, it was as I said, it was just one of those little bits to further down the wiki page, which I thought, oh well, that's worth throwing in there. I'll have to uh, listen to this track a little bit more closely now. Sure. So. Tom, you said you had an interesting bit of, uh, of trivia as well about this track. Yes, uh, actually, it was it was interesting because it was a single for the band, mm-hmm. which was kind of strange because usually you play your singles live, right? And they never played this live, really? right? Yeah, yeah. And this was another song yeah. that was never played live, ah. right? And it was a, it was a bona fide single. Right. And interestingly enough, if I remember correctly, the video for the single was them video. on stage. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes. Here's a song we're never going to play for you. (laughs) And it's not, doesn't sound like a particularly difficult song to play. It's another Tony verse chorus, verse chorus, and that's it. Yeah. And that's, and I actually never thought it was a terribly strong single because of that. Like, it's a nice enough song. But for, compared to Tony's other songs on the album, I like Undertow better. I like Burning Rope, Lady Lies better. You know, this song is, I could see that it was short and it was kind of melodic and piano driven. So, yeah, I'll put it out as a single. But nothing about this really screamed single to me. No, I have to say that it's not one of those ones which I would have actually pointed to and right. said, yep, yeah, stick that one out there. <laughs> right. Now, see, I, I disagree with you because I think this is, I mean,. In terms of the album, this is this and Follow You, Follow Me were the only single choices they had. Maybe Down and Out. Do you believe that it's like a label going, actually, this album might actually sell a few singles. Should we start trancing our arm here? Yeah, you know? absolutely. I think because, well, the length of the, the track, the mm-hmm. format, verse, right. course, you know, um, and it's a simple lyric I mean on paper it's a single right Right. Um, but I I can understand maybe it didn't have the uh, you know the impact that they intended to have I mean this this track is my jam I love this song (laughs) absolutely love this song Um, big lady boner for this one Um, really yeah I I absolutely love it I I think Phil sings it beautifully Mm -hmm. I think it's one of Tony's best lyrics in, in that he's What's it about? It's no, no, no. I, I. It's the exact thing I would think because lyrically, yeah, it's kind of a love lyric. No, it's about a guy like just being strung along by a woman and just being, you know, how could I be so blind? Yeah, like being used, and then she leaves him in the end. She just uses him and says. See you later. So basically, it's the story yeah. of our lives, Mike. <laughs> it was too close to me. I just didn't. Uh, I couldn't. I couldn't see that interpreting it that way. Yeah. But I was just impressed that Phil was able to sing lead on the front of the stage and play drums in the video at the same time. That was that was very <laughs> yeah. impressive. Yeah. Yeah. Brother, I think, doing that, right? So. Ted Collins, I think. <laughs> Phil is I, fucking I talented. He's he talented. can do all that and more. Shouldn't it be Bill Collins? Bill Collins. You gotta rhyme those uh, names for the twins. Gil, so. I think. <laughs> Gil, Gil yes. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I like it enough, but I, I'm I'm not quite sure about the oh mama parts of the lyric. Like it's, I never bought that kind of as 
Yeah, it needed didn't... to wait a few years for him to sing Oh Mama again. Right, with a little bit more power to it there. So, yeah, it's not a bad song, but it it doesn't it just doesn't do much for me. But I I get that it's The thing is, is and this is one of the things that um as I said, because of the perspective I'm coming at it, one of the things that's really hit me about this album is the shorter songs which got me. Sure, okay. Uh, and I, I think that's probably, I don't know whether that was a deliberate thing, but certainly from, from my ear. And, mm-hmm. I, you know, every other Genesis album I can, you know, spout bullshit till the cows come home. <laughs> this yeah. one is not one of those those albums which I can do that. And so as a result, I am coming to it with the mm-hmm. newcomer's ears. And the shorter songs, the concise songs really do hit home on this album. Right. Lyrically, I, I get what Stacey's saying looking at the lyrics now. And I, part of my notes that I was jotting down was that like a lot of like good shorter songs, the lyrics do leave a lot to the imagination. It's right. more about, it's not telling a story per se. It's about kind of giving you hints of a story mm-hmm. and then you put your own kind of interpretation onto it but i do think that you probably nailed the the right one there so <laughs> how could i be so blind that right yeah. I mean, that, that, yeah you that, set that me on a firmly laid and simple course and then removed the road yeah. you know it's right. uh Actually, it's betrayal it is right and that's what i mean it's it's yeah. it it, it this is one of his best lines. I mean, mm-hmm. there's no pretension. Mm-hmm. It's simple enough, but it also has some depth to it. It's, and, a, it's a good balance. And who would know? have thought that Tony would be yeah. the first one to write a lyric for Genesis that was that kind of relationship-related? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, so. there was a sea change going on in this band. Maybe yeah. even they didn't know it themselves at this yeah. point, but you know, this comes back to the fact that we all agree that this was a very much a transitional yeah. album. And when you're in it, you know, it's hard. It's always, you know, looking back with hindsight where people say, oh, this is, we can see where we were going now that we did this album. That do, again, it seems like the, the rational progression from there. But when you're in it, you're just writing the music that you're writing. You're, exactly you're maybe right, with yeah. a goal in mind of saying, you know, we've been writing these longer songs. Maybe we should try to be more concise to keep themselves interested and engaged in doing it. That's the thought that goes into it. But they all kind of say that, you know, it's kind of amazing how much thought they didn't put into things, that they just did what they did. I mean, they made a conscious decision to write differently from Abacab onwards because they all had their solo careers that they could do things with. And so that, I think, was the most intentional they might have ever been about how they actually produced music. Mm-hmm. Other than that, it was, oh, what songs do we have? What can we throw into the pot? Let's jam a bit and see what we come up with. Mm-hmm. And, and though Phil did sing you know, Mama more heartfully later on, that might not have happened if it weren't for this song. Because I'd seen an interview where Tony said he had to convince Phil right. to sing Oh Pretty Mama. Because right. Phil was like, yeah. ah, that's not going to work. That, that sounds weird coming out of me. And he's like, no. It'll work. It'll work. We go back to bread bin. It's bread bin or mama. (laughs) I'll go with mama. Yeah. Oh, pretty bread bin. (laughs) If he hadn't gotten to sing mama in this song, perhaps we would never have 83's mama. Right. I prefer this mama. I'm just saying. (laughs) I prefer the other mama. This song. I like like this song, but it doesn't do anything for me. I mean, it's just a pretty nice song. Phil sings amazingly. Mm -hmm. Obviously, his voice is beautiful. Mm. (laughs) But that's it. Well, we were talking about dreams before, so let's move on to Scenes from a Night's Dream.
it is a crazy song, and and to me, it always sounded very English. Yeah. Like I don't know if the Nemo is a reference to something in like or Jules Verne. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I. But this is like the lyrics on this are mad. <laughs> yeah, they are. It's, it's... Well, most dreams are mad. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, at least yeah. mine are. I don't know about everybody else here. And I do think it's interesting that assuming if if Phil wrote the lyrics. That, you know, the joke about Prague is that it's always about nymphs and fairies and stuff like that. And Phil writes the lyric that talks about goblins and nymphs. On Wait, and, and it's on, like, the most disco song yeah. they've yeah. ever done, ever. Right. I mean, that's Prague, I'll tell you right now. Exactly. Whenever I hear the, I mean, I've only heard this a couple of times, but the first thing that, that hit me about this music is you could instantly use this. You could redo it, like, for chip tune, okay. and you could have this, like... New level reach. It's very much, you know, video game-ish and talking about the mushrooms and all that. I'm like, this is kind of like Mario Kart type <laughs> of thing, you know? Very, very psychedelic in a lot of ways. But I love the energy in this track. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's got a, it's just the first time they're really grooving on the yeah, album. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, all right, here we go. Um, and it's great. And even though the lyrics are bonkers, I think it's sweet. I, I love it. Oh, I like it as well. I think yeah. Phil wrote this for his son Simon. Okay, um, that makes sense. You know, and the it's lead just, singer of Sound of Contact. Yes, the lead singer of Sound of Contact. And, are they related? Yeah. There you go. Strange. I'd have to look that up. Um, but uh, yeah, I just think it's it's really fun. Again, it's just so different than anything you've ever heard yeah. Genesis do yeah, before. Yeah. You know, I, I love that they're taking risks here. I know. You know, we've said some kind of. Uh, it all sounds the same and there's some you know things about the sound of the album that maybe is a little jarring but you know when you get down to it on a track by track basis um, there's a lot of really cool things happening right. here that yeah. are you know maybe aren't the best things they've ever done in their career but it absolutely sets them up for you know what's to come and this is one of those tracks absolutely for me uh, it's, it's kind of very vanilla for me I, I will listen to it but as soon as it's done it's like out of my head. Like it's not one of those <laughs> tracks where like, man, that was awesome. I got to hear that again. Like I'll, if I'm playing the album start to finish, I won't skip over it. I'll listen to it and I'll play it and I'll say, well, that's got some good moments in it. But then after none, I'm like, okay, I moved on. Yeah, it's not yeah. something that's going to stick with me. And I kind of make a, a choice between this song and Snowbound as the weaker tracks on the album. And I'm trying to think of well, one Snowbound I usually skip over. This one I don't. But why? Because the chorus of Snowbound makes that one to mm. skip over whereas this one I don't mind the whole thing even if it's not as thrilling as other sure. songs so it I'll, does I'll stick, hammer through the arrangement I'll stick through I'll stick oh, with yeah, it. It. Yeah, yeah I'll stick with it it reminds me of the, the middle part of uh, One for the Vine oh yeah has yeah. that oh, kind yeah, of yeah. you know talking about the disco driving yeah. part of it there you know there's yeah. that feel to it you're finally yeah. reminded of what year this was in. <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> and uh and I do think, you know, this, the song title is Truth in Advertising because Scenes from a Night's Dream, that's exactly what you get in this, yeah. in this song. Yeah. It's like, it is clear as crystal with that. And bonkers. <laughs> and bonkers, and bonkers yeah. yes. Yeah. Bonkers is a good way it's to describe it. So let's move on to Say It's All Right, Joe. Say it's To blow on the glass or know on the line Play me a song, John To feel the hours till morning Then never again will I bother you I'll build myself a tower No way in, no way out 
Is this a testosterone trap? I wouldn't have thought that, but no, uh... no, no. no. My lady balls have shriveled up and gone inside my body. But this, uh, it's strange that this song um, elicits that reaction because it's always one of those songs which seems to get a lot of like props visually. You know, yeah. it's the Phil Collins song where he actually dresses up as the tramp. You know, right. yeah, he does a little bit of costuming for this, yeah, exactly. which he which he never really did much of. You know, Peter was the guy who did costumes. Did he do Rob, do anything for Robert? Yeah, song, hat, I think. Yeah. You know, maybe not much other than that. I can't but. think of that. Like, there's that, and then there's maybe Illegal Alien. Is the only True, other one. Yes, yes. So, yeah, I think that I I like this song. For me, it's there's there's parts of it that that harken back you know i'll tie back to what stacy was saying before about this both looking back and looking forward where there's a couple lines like you know alive in my hive i'm like that's a very gabriel-esque you know that's a, a line there uh yeah there's sort one. of alliterative yeah. quality to it and then there's a later line that's like the little love that i've known i keep to myself and to me that's like taking it all too hard that's one of those things where when I listened to it, I was like, wow, that sounds like it could have been just pulled out of here and dropped into that lyric for that song. And I I just think that this has a wistfulness and a sadness that works for, for me. This is actually very dramatic. It almost It's like a mini play yeah. in, in many ways. It's uh, And I appreciate that kind of, you know... The, 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 the change I in, sense in a butt coming <laughs> oh the big butt coming down on this <laughs> but it just doesn't grab me um, I, I think if I did see this live it yeah. would have a, a a different effect because there's a lot of imagery going mm-hmm. on there's a lot of like kind of heartfelt communication here mm-hmm. and and just listening to it on the on the record it doesn't really transmit, I think, sure. as effectively as it would in a live situation. Is there any live footage of this? Oh yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. 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 They played this on the tour, and, and I remember. And for Duke, and yeah, Duke and Duke, yeah. Duke tour, and I always thought like, oh, why didn't they play many too many or like any other song right. in their back catalog <laughs> yeah. besides this? But I get why they did because it is like the only way to really 
experience the song, if you will, is is in that setting. And I, I just feel, unfortunately, on the album, it's just really lost on me. I, this is the one, like you say, you skip like Snowbound. I skip this one. Mm. I just got to get to Lady Lies <laughs> um, well, as I fast think, as possible. <laughs> I think you would actually probably hate the live version because he talks for about a minute. Inter- oh, then no, I would. I would go to the bathroom <laughs> during that part. I don't like talking in between songs, by the way. If anybody hasn't right. known that but about me, if they could take, I think this is. One of Rutherford's shining moments, yeah, and not just on this album, but in all of Genesis, and that's something about this album where it's got lots of great Tony moments, lots of great Mike moments, and this is one of them. If they had just used the way it was done live, is fantastic, and if they had done that on the album, it would have been a little bit better. I mean, I love the I love the air that is given in the first couple mm-hmm. verses to breathe, mm-hmm. like that. You have those really quiet moments where like yeah. there's no music at all. Mm-hmm. It's like this empty space which is awesome and they really play that out live but as a live song i don't think it was a good song to do in concert when you're at an arena or a, or a stadium it's 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 a horrible song to play in concert it, i think it really but maybe it, but they played it for two tours they played so it for two tours so which is kind of crazy yeah maybe it got a better uh, reaction i think they liked think. it yeah if, I, if I they think... played it in like a cabaret setting it yes. would be like the that... seeing that seeing this in a cabaret setting would be the ideal place. Sure. That is an interesting thing, though, that you put across, that there are songs that bands like that fans aren't as keen mm-hmm. on right. as opposed to tracks which fans like and mm-hmm. bands aren't as keen right. on. It just There is always going to be that kind of difference, and maybe it was that, that case of they liked it maybe more than the fans did. Right, because they, even if you watch the, some you know boots of the 80 tour or even the, the live one that they put out on their reissues, like they expand this from I don't know what is it five minutes mm-hmm. somebody, to probably ten minutes yeah, it's, long it's because he comes down. out bumbling as if like he's the drunk in the bar he puts on the hat he takes some time to put on the trench coat and then he has a lamp on the stage I think where yeah. he kind of sits down or leans up next to it like he's a drunk and it just goes on and on and we need to get a picture of Stacy's eye rolls. <laughs> oh, oh, you know, I, I, you know it makes sense because Phil was an actor first, right, you know, in many sure. ways. And yeah, I, I bet he pushed for this. I, I just my guess because. And it just uh, I can see that as an arena yeah. tour where you're coming out of. Yeah. They would play this after Squonk on many times. Oh, so when God. you're coming out of Squonk and then you spend 10 minutes going to this long derelict who's in a bar and he's ordering another drink from the bartender just so he can feel he's alive. Right. It. it takes you down a little bit <laughs> and if it's later the later you are in the set i don't know where this was in the set but the more drunk your audience is and the more <laughs> intolerable they are to that kind of not like oh, yeah. i don't i'm sorry nonsense of <laughs> like i don't know my whole thing is like you should not talk between songs or do anything between songs that takes up more time than a song you could have played in your set yeah so. perform monkey yeah exactly <laughs> sorry that's my preference uh, you know no, you, the artist always has the last say of course um, we, you can hear I allow it, it you can hear it in the duke tour when they yeah. play this people are shouting during yeah. the quiet times yeah. and you can tell and probably phil was singing in his head shut the f up you know yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm doing this performance piece where I'm taking on the role of this guy, and I don't want to hear you shouting out for Landwise Down on Broadway or, or right. whatever they were yeah, shouting. Yeah, gone are the days where Gabriel, you know, when Gabriel used to have his 
five minute weird kind of like monologue before supper's ready nobody was really shouting i think they were terrified of them to be honest <laughs> with you we were afraid to say anything but you know that those days have changed they started playing arenas places where people could drink places where they want to hear loud rock and roll and yeah i think they were trying to maybe go back to that that time where there was a little bit more theatrics and actually, drama is but... there actually documentary evidence where i recorded evidence of people shouting that out during this thing on the bootlegs and, and the like then i'll have to listen back to yeah, some of those things so. I think, yeah. but like you know, anytime there's quieter bits, people yeah. shout stupid stuff. Yeah. So I think that you know, probably some audiences were better than others for yeah. this, and maybe it depended upon whether you know alcohol was sold or whatever. You know, uh, Phil does say in that you know he and Tony went to back in the '70s went to go see a band that was unnamed at the time, but I think it ended up being Bad Company. Um, where Tony, where Phil said he's like, you know, you went to a bad company show, and you know, a third of the people were there to get laid, a third of them were there to get drunk, and only a third of them were there there to listen to the music. And he said, compared to our shows, where most, hopefully, the bigger percentage is to, you know, and I think Tony jumped in and said, you know, get laid, but uh, <laughs> but it was but nice just to listen Tony. to the music. So you know, that's that's something that was there. Well, that's why we show up at tabletop. A third of us want to get laid. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. That's why there are two married couples. As well. <laughs> My one piece of trivia about this song is that when they did the remixes in the 2006-2007 time frame, this is the only song they could not find the multi-tracks for. Really? So it's the only song in all the all the remixes that actually it's kind of whatever how they do the kind of fake 5.1 mix when it's just the the regular master so this is the only song they couldn't find for out of all the remixes out of all the 5.1s it's sitting in some shed somewhere yeah so and i think that nick davis posted that on the on the old genesis forum or was out there somehow that this was the only one they couldn't find for is really too bad because I thought that this song could really benefit from a true 5.1 yeah. mix with all the different kind of quieter guitars and then, you know, especially at the end where there's this longer outro of music, I thought that could have been really good. And it's okay with the with the fake 5.1, mm. but it could have been better. Well, then let's move on to something Stacy will want to talk about. The let's la- do it! The Lady Lies. <laughs> Bow, 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 bow,
Is this a legal alien? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it is written like, in ink. So I, I like this track. Are we started? I, I, yeah. Oops. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> We're allowed to do this stuff. So. I, I think that uh, the I like this. I think it's the most cohesive lyric on the album as a story. Uh, it's something that really flows and makes sense. And I think that again, live, I think it took on a very different, very much more performance aspect of the way that Phil worked the audience. I think I saw something of... They, did they play this at Nebworth? In, in... Yes, they did. They played it on him, on Duke in this tour pretty consistently. It was him pretending to sword fight, I think, on yes. stage. <laughs> was, uh, well, he used yes. to intro saying he was... There's a couple of different characters that he was going to play. Oh, one was the hero right, yes. and one was the villain. And for the villain, he would do like this mustache twirling. Oh, he make the audience... And he made, oh, yeah. make the audience yeah. boo. Yeah. And then when they would boo... He would give him the finger. Yeah. That's, that's oh, so that's where all of those photos of him. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. what I thought. Mike yeah. thinks they're from a different. No, era. no. There, there's, there's photos from him when he has the beard, especially in the Duke tour, where he's yeah, giving the yeah. finger and all this stuff. But there's another one of him, famous, kind of a shirtless yeah. one, yeah. Give, giving the finger. But it, that's Abacabia tour. Abacabia. I think he was just giving the finger to somebody. Because he's <laughs> Phil <laughs> fucking Collins exactly. and he can do what he wants. So. They're like, let me take a picture with your tambourine in your pants. And he's like, screw you. So, but. I really like this. I think it has, you know, more great bass from Mike throughout it. Oh, yeah. I think the music has a real cool feel to it. Uh, and it's another story song, you know? It's it's a lot of fun. The vision, I think listening to this song, even without having ever seen it live, for me, I get a picture of the story. Like, I think that these lyrics really give the visual, you know, equivalent of what's going on, so... I love this track. Um, I think it's my favorite on the whole album. And you know, when I first uh, got you know got this album and was listening to it, I didn't really rate it as much. I, I love "Follow You, Follow Me" because that was familiar because that was played on the radio endlessly here yes. <laughs> uh, for since it uh, was released. Um, and I think I also was you know I was really into "Many Too Many" mm-hmm. and uh, "Down and Out" were like my favorites. Um, it wasn't until I heard this live, the Nebworth show that Simon mm-hmm. referenced on the uh, what was that documentary they did? Genesis. Maybe the three three dates with Genesis. Three dates with yeah. Genesis, mm-hmm. and at the end they show them performing, and they they showed a clip from this track, and Phil runs over to this like percussion yeah. like setup he's got, and I was like. This song's got balls. I, I just yeah, I had a new appreciation for it, and you know, even I, I absolutely love the, the the live versions they have. I think the Genesis, the first Genesis archive, no, second Genesis archive, yes. has a fantastic a live, live yeah. version from the, um, from the Duke tour that I highly recommend checking out. Um, even going back and listening to it again on the album version is still like is really powerful. Um, There's a great middle breakdown. Oh, absolutely! In, you know, it, yeah. it really grooves. It, it, yeah. it just, uh, it, it just, yeah. Chester really like kicks us up a notch live, um, and uh, I really enjoy it. I love listening to it. Um, this is one of those songs that ends. It's like, yeah, I want to listen to that again. <laughs> can, can we uh, can we just take this opportunity? I'm, I'm sorry to take it a little bit away from the song, but uh, this might be actually be a good opportunity with you mentoring Chester. This is the first live tour that featured Daryl Sturmer Correct, on, yes. on right. guitar. It might not necessarily have been their most creative uh, period, but it signalled what I personally believe to be the best live iteration of the band. Sure. When Mike wanted to look for someone, he wanted a a guy that could play guitar as well as bass. Right. It was kind of, at, at the time, it was finding a guitarist who played bass. 
And I think they were looking also at Alfonso Johnson. Oh, well, the guy yeah. from Weather Report. Yes. Mm-hmm. And he would, would have been more of a bassist who could play guitar also. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that especially earlier days, Mike kind of knew that he'd be still playing more bass live than guitar. Mm-hmm. And I think actually on both the, uh, this tour and for Duke, he really played minimal guitar live. I think he did on Deep in the Motherload, um, but on things like even Behind the Lines, he played, like he played the bass for that. He didn't play guitar. He didn't play guitar much during this tour, I don't think. I think so. he was like he started to flower certainly live on yeah. the Abacab. Abacab is really yeah. when he came out more because I think he was more practiced at it at that yeah. point. So he had done the bits that worked for him and got more comfortable with it, and then was able to really be the lead guitarist live also. But I just you know again it comes down to the fact that I think Daryl has been an immense soldier yeah, for definitely. the band over the years uh, as as is, as is Chester really. Right. Um, and uh, this song, especially this song, where you you hear, there's a lovely groove which they uh, that they do during the um, "Come with me, I need yeah. you." Yeah. That's like wow. Right. And and I think to myself, is that something they could nail live? And they absolutely nail it live. It sounds brilliant. One more thing about this tour, which was pretty impressive, was that they had a bunch of firsts when they did the set list for this tour. One of them they brought back in the cage. This was really? the first time they had brought oh, back yeah. in the cage, That's true. and it remained a staple from then until forever. Right yeah. until we can't dance tour. Right. right. Uh, another thing it was the first time Ripples was played. Yes. They hadn't done it on Trick of the Tail tour. They hadn't done it on Wind and Wuthering. They brought this out and they played it on this tour and Duke tour. Mm-hmm. And two thousand seven. And two thousand seven. Uh, some of the times Cinema Show went into Afterglow, mm-hmm. and there was occasion where they did Cinema Show. Ride in the Scree, In That Quiet Earth, and Afterglow. So they're kind of prepping for the main medley we all know right. in Mama mm-hmm. Tour. Uh, and a few times they did bring, bring back Dancing with the Moonlit Night, which would go into Carpet Crawlers. Right. Oh, nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they, they, they kind of were... So it was just about the time that they were starting to medley stuff together. Yeah, I think there were. I think there was a couple medleys they did the previous in, tour where they would go... Yeah. It was Lamb and, and the Musical, Musical Box. It's kind yeah. of the classic one. Um, as the encore but yeah this was where they especially with with cinema show which was the big track that they played instead of supper's ready on on that tour they would generally go into afterglow from that uh but you're right they might have started playing with some of the other ideas there too yeah i mean you got two essentially new touring musicians mm-hmm. with them yeah. um you know mike's trying to go between guitar and bass and that yeah. whole world so i can see there's a lot of experimentation and seeing what works and doesn't work i yeah. wonder whether or not part of the reason why whether or not the actual additional musician informed the choice to actually choose things like in the cage and bring those back mm. for the simple reason right. that you know I've got Daryl Stower in the band. Let's try some. Let's try some of the older material yeah. with, uh, with with Steve. A exactly. Right. And I think that, like Tony has said, within the cage specifically, he said no discredit to Phil, but there was something about the way Chester approached that mm-hmm. that worked better. That was just kind of it made it flow a little bit more. And I think that you know, with Daryl on guitar, that probably made the guitar arrangement a little bit different too. But he specifically talked about the drums with that one. Well, what, so. going back to uh, to that, the, the choice of those two. I mean, one of the things that both uh, Phil and uh, Mike said was mm-hmm. just the quality of session guys yeah. in America was superior to. And it wasn't so much. He said one of the things. It wasn't so much that they could play better, but they were. 
the accuracy yeah. that you know and the timing he, he said Daryl Sturmer's timing was he said was almost ungodly in comparison mm-hmm. to to what we'd been enjoying up until that moment and right. so yeah it could conceivably be that sort of like you know they brought something to the table that those guys could never do right and then i think the most probably impressive feat of this tour was it was the first time since 75 that peter gabriel joined them on stage (laughs) they played a show i think in madison Square garden where peter came on and joined them for i know what i like in the encore yeah. which I said since 75 it's only three years right but it probably was a lifetime then and it was such a huge deal I mean those right. people got a... just imagine where have you been yeah, yeah. <laughs> welcome back you're late so. yeah <laughs> but yeah I think that would have been and that's one of those things that compared to like the Milton Keynes show that doesn't get talked about much that he did guest with them at that oh, point. I didn't even know that. Yeah, I didn't know, I didn't know about it until yeah. later in my Genesis fandom that you know it was like, oh yeah, and there's there's a pretty poor sounding bootleg of it that you really can't tell that it's him, but you can tell that there's another singer there. And then I think Phil says at the end, at the Mr. End, Peter yeah. Gabriel, or whatever. And the funny thing is, there were probably some fans even at that early stage who were just like. Why did they have Peter Gabriel on stage with yeah. them? Like they might not have really known. Again, I think the majority of fans did. But again, you know, a couple years on, there are those people who became fans at Trick of the Tale, Wind and Wuthering, this album, and might not have explored the back catalog yet. So it's interesting. You know, like, I can't believe I was at that show and I had no clue that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was seven at the time. Why did I know who that was? So, well, I, I put this up there with the Lamia. In terms of it's a song that everyone loves and I just can't get on board with. <laughs> There's something about it where I don't know if it's because of the dragons and the, and the, and the knights and I, it's just one of those songs where like I, I even I'll skip over it sometimes because it's one of those. Uh, it just doesn't do anything for me. I don't know why. Like I I, I understand like the musical awesomeness of it and there's a couple parts during like the instrumental part which is great and and live it's good to see folk go up and do the you know percussion mm-hmm, during the sure. instrumental part. And actually, the ending of it live is really good. I like the way they get in it. Like, they build up to, like, yeah. really fast and they keep going, whereas in the studio, they kind of, like, just fade out, I think it is. But it, I just, it was one that... It doesn't move It you. doesn't move me. Like, this guy going through, and he's being seduced by this demon, and she's a monster, and, and, and I come to my garden, taste the fruits and the spices of love. What does that mean? Like... Oh, you know what it means. What? <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you one food and something special after. It's like. just a buffet, right? She's a, she's a demon. Little known fact, I've never told this to anybody before, oh, but no. um, how, I, how I got Simon to come to America oh. is really reciting the chorus of this. He says, I come with me, I need you. I fear the dark and I... Oh, wait. <laughs> and I live all alone. Yeah, and she oh, also wait, said, and I have cake. <laughs> <laughs> and I think for me, it, it kind of is a little, little of a weird song because it reminds me of Burning Rope and the fact that the lyrics are stuff that Phil had a little trouble singing. Like, in a forest, in a glade, with a bait so richly wrapped, he was kind of done singing that, yeah, those kinds right. of lyrics by the late 70s. He was ready for a little bit more down-to-earth songs. And this... This was kind of probably the last otherworldly until Domino. Right. (laughs) I think you're right. I think it was the this was this track really did signal the last gasp of the seventies Genesis. 
they, we, they would never ever return to this kind of sort of style again even with the yeah. sort of domino it was yeah. um, you know I then it was sheets of double glazing you yeah know? but it, but it was more set in like a realistic yeah, you know, exactly, theme where yeah. this is you know more fantasy and, and peter was always writing his own fantasy lyrics yeah. at the time you know and so they were still writing in that mode of not writing for peter's voice but kind of saying Oh, you know, that's what we've done before, right. so this is what we're continuing to do, because we like doing that. Right. And then I think, you know, as Phil's saying more, this is now the third album he's sung lead on. And then, like I think we were saying before, with Dude, he kind of said, probably lying in the sand mm-hmm. of, let's be a bit more direct about this. And also, we're, we're older now, yeah, and exactly. we have some life experience yes. that we can... We can pen and relate right. to, um, and 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 put in a song yeah. versus you know I'm kind of young. I don't I haven't seen much of the world yet, so I'm gonna have to rely on still, other people. Th- when this album yeah. came out, they were 27, 28. Yeah. This is again. This is uh, th- again. It's their ninth album, and they're not even 30. Man, yet. that blows my mind. Though. I know. That's <laughs> this, that is something that was Genesis. You have to yeah. keep remembering just how young they were right. when they started. Yeah. And that, you know, Gabriel left when they were 25. Steve was 27 when they left. You know, it's... I could hardly time my shoelaces. Yeah, exactly. You know, think back to your own mid-20s and what you were doing at that point. And, And a lot of it was just, yeah, you were thinking, oh, I'll go off and do this. I'll go off and do that, you know, and... That's where they were. They were on this this road of being this being one of the best rock bands in the world. Yeah, they knew what they wanted. Yeah. Which at that age is quite Very something. Different, so. Yeah, just as I said, I was never into Dungeons and Dragons, and this song seemed to be like he steps out of the moonlight, roll the dice. Does he go with her? Or not? <laughs> <laughs> so what happens in the end? Right, so is there an elf somewhere? Let me help with Probably. this. So. Well, great. Well, that brings us to the final track on the album. Follow you, follow me. about Ow. this track now because because Ellie and I when we got married this was our first dance Aww. <laughs> but it is it's it's this is a song that you know as much as we were saying that this album sounds very much the same throughout it this is the track that's like lifted from another planet <laughs> and is put onto this album that, and it fits yeah. but it doesn't sound like the rest of the album yes. everything that 
your own special way got wrong, this song gets right. You can't compare, I think, Follow You, Follow Me with your own special well, I way. I just did. <laughs> <laughs> you're right. You're right. I sense an agenda at work here. <laughs> yeah, there we go. No, but this is this is a wonderful track, and it's it's a great, you know, interesting little guitar pattern from Mike. Tony does this kind of cool keyboards throughout the verses underneath the vocals. Has a cool little keyboard solo that is, again, a perfect keyboard solo for the song. Phil's delivery is fantastic. His kind of percussion-y drums are fun. Everything about this song is just like, this is a cool three-and-a-half, four-minute little pop song. It's pretty much a perfectly written pop song. Like, there's nothing... If you had to teach a class and how to write a perfectly constructed song... With beginning, middle, and yeah. you would probably play Follow You, Follow Me. I really like the line where he says, my milkshake brings all the boys to the yard. It's, really... <laughs> it's so on the which, reissues, which right? Which line are we mistaking for that? <laughs> <laughs> but didn't, didn't you play the flute on the middle part? Did you yeah, I, the I learned the, the keyboard solo on the flute. Um, I think I got it right maybe zero times. <laughs> zero times I got it right. Um, but I tried. Play you. Yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I love this track. It, it's funny because it, when I went back, to, when I got this album, I didn't know Follow You, Follow Me. Like, I, I, you know, I look at all the songs on the album and I'm like, okay. And then when I heard it, it was like, <gasps> because this song was played constantly yeah. on the radio in the U.S. when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. And um, I recognized it just from hearing it on the radio. I had no idea it was Genesis sure. until, you know, I actually got this album many years later. Um, so this has always been a favorite and something very familiar in my life uh, for many, many years. For me, this album, uh, the best way I can describe this album um, is it feels like a mad old uncle. And just when you think it's lost complete touch with reality, Follow You, Follow Me comes on and that's the quiet knowing wink towards you like, I meant all of this. Okay. <laughs> yeah. He's like, he's sane enough to sh- to know that it's not crazy. It, this I, is I, the I, wink to the audience. And it, what a wink. It's yeah. a great song. It's, yeah. it's kind of a wink like closing out the 70s. Yeah. Here's where we're exactly going. Right. Wink, yeah. nudge, nudge. You know, this is where we're going. Stay with us. Trust us. Yeah. And where else would this song have fit on this album? Yeah. I mean, it's a perfect closing track for this album. You know, maybe something like The Lady Lies could have been a closing track, but then where do you put Follow You, Follow Me? Yeah. You know, it's something that, but again, because it's it has such a different feel than the rest of the music on this album. It's like it, the album's taken its tie off at the end of a, yeah. a very a very sort of like... It's the encore. Busy, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And from what I understand, I think that this was in interviews or something somewhere that like David Henschel, who produced this album, actually didn't think this was a very good track that he kind of thought it was like, eh, you know. Clang! <laughs> yeah. So it was like, oh, what do you need that that for? You know, it's like we got all this other stuff. And there is a, a strange mix on the U.S. single version of this that's a bit more percussion heavy. Right. Uh, and it, it somebody made an MP3 out of it out there somewhere. And it's, I don't know whether it was just an early mix. And I think one of the interviews, they say that, oh, we had an earlier mix of it that, you know, that we put out. But then we decided to kind of redo it because it needed just a little bit more oomph to it. And that's the version everybody knows. Like the single version never gets played anywhere. So, Interesting, huh? but it's... it's I, I also hear that um, 
Pete Townsend uh-huh. um, used to apparently play this quite a lot on the tour bus with the Who. Oh, really? Yeah, he, he used to say it. He said it was yeah. one of the most perfect pop songs he'd ever yeah. heard. Yeah. I think so. And then he yeah. writes "Let My Love Open the Door," which is another yeah. perfect pop, little pop it song. It sounds so. a little like this. Song, <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. feel. Yeah, I yeah, can see that. Feel, so, yeah. Absolutely. But again, there there are these perfect little bits of music that, again, because maybe because none of us grew up in the seventies as adults or teenagers. You know, we don't see this as the betrayal of previous Genesis. This is just a part of their history that, again, points to where they're going in a different way. And I think that, for me, that's why I think this is great. I think it's it's a fantastic little song. Like, people will point to the death of Genesis and how they're embracing (laughs) pop love songs, and they'll look towards Phil. But if you look at this album, I mean, you've got... Follow You, Follow Me mm-hmm. song. You've got Many Too Many, which is a right, simple love song. Yeah. It's like everyone was exploring their own creative, yeah. you know, where their they were at that point. Short. Yeah, way of yeah. being short and expressing their feelings in a certain way. It wasn't just mm-hmm. Phil coming in and, and doing what he wanted. It was everyone's evidence from this album. People were starting to write shorter songs mm-hmm. and express more of their own feelings. I think that really sort of is indicative of, of the fact that a lot of fans who who don't like the later period and you know there are some albums in the sure. later period which I am not a big sure, fan of sure. either but it's a lazy diatribe it's that whole business of getting on a train and expecting what's going past the window to stay exactly the mm-hmm. same right. you're heading towards a destination of course it's going to change and I still think I will argue that yes this is a pop song but it's a pop song with substance it feels like it's not just somebody sitting there strumming guitar and, you know, kind of making up whatever comes next. It's like this was something that, again, in the arrangement, everything comes together really well for this. Yeah, it's quite sophisticated. It's not a simple, yeah. boring song. It's right. quite, you know, yeah. elaborated. And because they had written these big, extravagant pieces of music, they were able to create something short, finally, that I think encapsulated what they wanted to do in a shorter time frame versus, you know, you can say a song like I Know What I Like is another single, another three or four minute song, but it's a very different type of feel to it that, again, as they say, they always wrote short songs. They just got better at it. Yeah, I think that's what they always wanted to do. They wanted to be songwriters. They wanted to be played on the radio. Mm -hmm. And uh, now they're finally at a point in their... As twenty-seven-year-olds, <laughs> um, you know, getting getting to that point where they—I think they've always wanted to go—and yeah. good for them. And I'm 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 excited. Yeah. You know, if I was a fan uh, from the beginning, I would be excited about where they're going yeah. next. And and Mike says this was a track that I think took them hardly any time at all to write. Right. Oh, and you yeah. think some bands would spend hours and right. days and weeks trying to come up come up with a song that's half as good as a song, mm-hmm. and they were so experienced professional by that point like my it's like oh, i'll go write in some lyrics and boom they, they, they yeah they was, came out and well, and i think that they were they they had enough quality control that you know when when they were jamming doing this stuff that you know when mike starts doing something on the guitar like this they can tell when the pieces have character mm-hmm. and tell when the pieces have something to them it's like oh we should keep going with this mm-hmm. and i think that's you know perhaps that's- a sign that they needed to work with a different producer later on i agree and so. it, but it also speaks to the chemistry and the trust within the band as right. well when someone says okay well i'll run with you on this yeah a couple more things one of my favorite uh versions of this is on the songbook oh yeah when it's just a pared down stripped you know acoustic version of this where phil's on bongos mm-hmm. and, and mike's i think on acoustic guitar and tony's just on the keyboard and they run through the song 
and it's just really nice and quiet to listen to. And this was in 2001, I think. Yeah, around that time frame. I remember watching it thinking, oh, if they could only get together again. They're playing so well <laughs> together. They haven't right. played in almost 10 years. Will they ever play right. again? This gives them some hope. Yeah. And they, they play that. They like each other. They're having such yeah. fun playing it. Yeah. So I'm like, if they could only get together. And finally, in 2007, there you have it. we got to see them play it live. And yeah. I just noticed something watching the When in Rome video and i and i'd never noticed it in the eight times that i saw it which is i must have been on so much beer or something <laughs> is that you'll notice during when they played follow you follow me one phil was behind the drums which is yes. awesome mm -hmm. and two they had the we can't dance characters in the background kind of like an animation and they all the, the from, screen, di a lot of from different ones yeah but the the father of the we can't dance mm -hmm. animation walks up the big hill mm -hmm. turns on the spotlight that mm -hmm. shines over phil Right. Yeah. At the very end, he comes back on and turns off the spotlight. Right. Phil. Yeah. And I can't believe I never noticed. You that. never noticed that? Yeah. No. I was there. Yeah. Well, I was there too. <laughs> oh, that's right. You were there in Rome. You need to lie off the beer. I do. I guess so. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. Well, that brings us to the end of the actual album, but there are two bonus B-side tracks that were on the singles for this: uh, Vancouver and the Day the Light Went Out. kind of tracks that for me I'm like oh yeah these are not supposed to be on the album <laughs> uh, again not that they're horrible but I'm just like they don't fit yeah they're more of the same I would say that is already in the album well funny funny you should say that because I really have no idea of this album but I, when we I, we listened to, to these two tracks on YouTube mm -hmm. last night and I suddenly realised that I'd heard Vancouver okay but I had not heard the day the light went out, right. I, so that was very interesting, sort of like because I was going, Genesis song, <laughs> yeah, and it's it's not bad, I mean, but again, it's again, it does strike me as being a little bit um, Super Mario Brothers, you know, <laughs> yeah. I, I, 
a lot of energy being expended for I don't quite know what yeah. in, in that song, The Day the Light Went Out. But again, sort of going back to what you were saying about vignettes, you can mm. definitely tell that both of these were, were vignettes which were not developed. Right, exactly. So they could have been, I think Vancouver itself could have developed into something else. Day the Light Went Out could have been a part of something bigger. Maybe kind of the music for that could have been inserted into something or, or developed or pieces of it. But yeah, they, it's, they chose the right songs to be on the album. Yeah, I mean the day the light. The, the day <laughs> Very the nice light, way of saying they suck. Yeah, <laughs> very diplomatic of you, Mike. Yeah. Hey. The day the light went out for me is like an epic song that they did in a very short yeah, time. They like scrunched it in. Yeah. It's like we're gonna do all this epicness in a mm-hmm. very short amount of time. Um, it's very rollicking and jaunty, and you know, <laughs> that's a great word, rollicking. Yeah. <laughs> rollicking and jaunty, and it, it it works for about a minute, and then I'm like, okay. It's like we're here's done. the knife, but a science fiction version of the knife. Yeah. Right. And it just when we're watching the skies. When we're preparing for this and Mike's like, Oh remember to listen to Vancouver and Day of the Light went out, I was like, Oh, do we have to? <laughs> but then but then because I hadn't listened to them for a while, I said, Alright, well let me listen to them. And Vancouver was a little bit better in my ears than yeah. I thought it, than I had remembered it yeah. was. And and I actually looked at all the lyrics and the lyrics are it's about pretty much a, a girl i assume she's a teen and her parents are fighting and she has this threat well i'm going to leave home and halfway you know on her way she's probably waiting for the bus she's like i'm scared i'm lonely i'm going to go back home and she tries to sneak into bed before her parents know that she tried to run away but they know she did because they're parents and they come in and they're like please don't remember what we said before we don't mean it we hope you never leave so it's kind of a, a nice story uh-huh. it's and but the last verse kind of has like this mer- shaking sim like moroccan kind of like a weird kind of bongo like it's a very happy mood Mm -hmm. where it doesn't fit the song so that kind of takes me out of it and there's a the one lyric which always which always bothered me was it was not the thing that i set out to do like it just seemed really (laughs) awkward and weird and so it it had potential but it just never got who wrote that one that was uh phil and mike that was, yeah, I think yep. Vancouver. Yeah, Vancouver a, is um, Phil and Mike. And, yeah, Phil's lyric, I would think. Uh, and then The Day the Light Went Out was all Tony. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and when I got to that one, I, that's always just been one that's been just a step below pigeons in terms of, <laughs> terms of grading on me. I just, it always seemed like it's starting mid-song. Like all of a sudden yeah. someone's turning up the yeah, volume, yeah, sure, sure. and then you've got to start it right away. I think that's kind of cool. I like mm-hmm. that. Wow. Vancouver, <laughs> Phil's vocals aren't so great. It's boring. <laughs> I like Vancouver. It. <laughs> it might be boring, but I, I don't mind it. It works for you. Yeah, I hear you. Isn't that, yeah. oh, I'm, I want to cry or to hear it, but I, I like it. it and that's it. And that's right. It. Yeah. 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 It's, it's a, not yeah. horrible. Like With so. more work, they could have been something. They're, they're, I think they're two of the lightest bonus tracks in the Genesis canon. Yeah. I think that, you know, Duke has better bonus tracks, Abacab, you know, uh, Invisible Touch and all that uh, going forward. But, yeah, they, they, they're they there. They made the right choice in leaving them off. Yeah. So, Tom, before we get to your massive poll, we're going to talk about our own favorite track on the album. So, Tom, why don't you go first? I'll go first. It was actually a very tough call. I was going between Undertow and Burning Rope. And I had to think, well, which one would I listen to over and over again? And I'd, I'd have to go with Burning Rope, only because even though there's some great moments in Undertow, Burning Rope, start to finish, has so much of a different kind of variety to it. 
screaming guitars at the end. Mm-hmm. I love Tony's lyrics. I love that he started with the chorus first. I'd, mm-hmm. I'd have to go with and a, a song that I'd love to see live. So I'd have to go with Burning Rope. All right, Miss Stacy. Um, thank you for dressing me as Miss. I'll do it from now I appreciate on. that. Um, I, for me, it was between Many Too Many and Lady Lies, um, but I, I I went with Lady Lies right. because that's the one track that you know. If I was gonna pick a track from each of their albums, like I was making a mixtape, right? This is what I would pick. You know? Very nice. <laughs> from from and then there were three. Follow you, follow me. Good I, 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 I I'm sorry. That's just. I, it might not necessarily be the popular choice, but it's a great song. I agree. I agree with that too, but I was torn between Undertow and Burning Rope too, Tom. But I, my favorite is my favorite is Undertow. Hmm. Undertow gets the vote. I was torn between Burning Rope and Follow You, Follow Me. I again, I very different songs from each other, and I had to go with Burning Rope. But I think that if you got me on a different day, I'd say Follow You, Follow Me. Yeah. So th- these are not set in stone. Right. So. So what do our voters say in your big poll? Tom shows you his poll. Well, I have to congratulate Tony Banks. He was the big winner in this poll because his songs were the top three. Number one with 20 votes and 22% of the vote was Burning Rope, followed by a tie for the second place, Undertow and Lady Lies with 13 votes. So mm-hmm. congrats to getting the top three. Follow that with with number three, Mike with Deep in the Mother Load. He got twelve oh, votes. Okay. That's a good song. Right? Yeah. Followed by one two votes less with ten votes was many too many. Five one vote less than that was down and out, nine votes. Then you kinda of go down a little bit. Then you got Snowbound with six votes. One more or less, which was very surprising. Follow you, follow me. Only got five votes. That is surprising. I thought that would actually score yeah. a lot higher. Yeah, me too. Yeah. And it scored below Snowbound. It's I'm to be shocked. <laughs> Then with two votes, I don't know, some people think it's a dream, a nightmare, but Scenes from a Night's Dream got two <laughs> votes. And then scoring the you know, much-coveted illegal alien goose egg vote with zero votes were Ballad of Big and Say It's All Right, Joe. Say It's All Right, Joe. That's, Which I, I think yeah. those would have gotten at least one vote. Yeah. But Well, yeah. this, this was, we got feedback when the voting was open about people asking if that we should change the poll so that people could vote for two songs because there was a lot of people saying oh it's so hard to choose the one song and i think that man up yeah exactly (laughs) so but but i do empathize with that position because i do think that this especially on this album yeah because there because again as i started as i said at, at the beginning there's the highs of this album are not super high, but the, there's not super lows on this album either for me. It's not a snowbound, but it's like, <laughs> but it's, but I don't. Even that is not horrible. It's just that it repeats itself a bit right, too much. Right. So it, this is a very even album, and so I and I, when I voted, I said, you know, Burning Rope or Fall You Fall Me, mm-hmm. two very different tracks that I like for very different reasons. So. And when you cast your vote, that can be your favorite track at that moment. Yeah, right. like we—it's you're not locked into that being. Yeah, your we will track. not be right. battering it down yes. your door on some midnight yeah. hour, going, yeah. "Have you changed your mind?" And it's—I don't even think our poll is terribly scientific. No. Like, <laughs> like I'll, I'll be honest, I think you could probably vote twice if you wanted to. Well, <laughs> <laughs> we might not have that locked down there, yeah. so not the no, word. Oh, do we? Yeah, oh, did you try? <laughs> <laughs> you're one of those. 
There we go. Get onto a different computer. Go to a library and log on. Get so, IP. Yes. Well, it's, it's, so there's this influx of people going into the library. It's the tabletop genesis. <laughs> set it up so I can't vote twice. Well, this has been another fantastic conversation that we're glad that you guys have all been a part of. And we enjoyed talking about this album. And we hope you enjoyed all listening to this also. So signing off from the tabletop, this is Mike Lord. This is Ellie. See you next time. This is Simon. This is Stacy. And Tom. And we'll see you next time with some other album that we'll think about later on. Thank you for listening to this episode of Tabletop Genesis. Archived episodes can be found at tabletopgenesis.com, along with updates, polls, and various other podcast-related news. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes to have new shows automatically downloaded to your computer when we post new episodes. To keep up with all the Tabletop Genesis activity, follow us on Twitter at Genesis Tabletop. You can like us on Facebook by searching for Tabletop Genesis, and you can email us directly at genesistabletop at gmail.com. Let us know what you think of the podcast or send us questions we can address on future episodes. Yeah.